We are not going to be doing a study in Daniel this week. We're going to take a break, one week break, um, maybe two, but, but hopefully just one week break from our study series in Daniel. And we're going to look at a text here in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. If you're looking for 2 Chronicles, it's part of the historical books of the Old Testament. So if you find 1st or 2nd Samuel or 1st or 2nd Kings, you're almost to Chronicles. They follow that. And so um, find 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And as you're looking for that, I'll give you a little bit of background this morning on what we're going to be talking about. The central character of Scripture is God. Uh, the, the person that we're supposed to be looking at and looking for in Scripture is Jesus Christ himself throughout the, the Old Testament. And obviously, he is the focus of the new. So Christ and God and everything that the, the Trinity is doing in and amongst Humanity is the highlight and the focal point of the scriptures. All of the word of God speaks of his glory and who he is. And so when we talk about main characters of text, I just think that should overshadow what we're talking about. That we're talking about God, who is the main character, and Jesus, who we are longing and looking for from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And so as we look at the scriptures, we are looking for Jesus, and we're looking for the work of God amongst his people. And so we often see these things that he's doing in the Old Testament, we see them working their ways out through his people Israel. And so the nation of Israel at this point has divided into two kingdoms. It's the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And in this kingdom divide, there's a lot of, uh, I would say, difficulties that come along with a nation that's divided against itself. And so as you look at this text, who we're going to focus on in this passage is the king of southern Judah, a man named Jehoshaphat, who was the fourth king of Judah, ruling from 872 to 848 BC. Now, he was the son of King Asa, and he was thoroughly devoted to God. And this, this became kind of a rarity in the history of the kings heading into the time of exile, which is actually what we're studying in Daniel, is the nation being removed from their homeland and Daniel living in exile in Babylon through the Babylonian Medo-Persian empires. And so as we are now before that happening, we're prior to that taking place, we're looking at the kings of the nation of Israel, northern Israel and southern Judah now, but these are supposed to be men who follow God, who worship God, and show the nations around them what it looks like to do that. They failed miserably, especially on the northern side. The southern kings have held on a little bit, but they're going to start to deteriorate as well. King Jehoshaphat here is actually doing a pretty good job. He was the son of a king who followed the Lord. Jehoshaphat was thoroughly devoted to God, but made some kind of disastrous alliances with northern kings. Ahab, Ahaziah, they were wicked kings of the northern nation of Israel. And at this time, as they're divided from each other, he shouldn't be associating with their wickedness. He has in the past, but we're going to see here that he's still a pretty good king and is still leading the people in the worship of God. And even though his alliances with northern kings created would lead to more problems down the road, we still see him able to receive rebuke, and he brought about some very good judicial reforms. One of the few kings of Judah who actually did this, that spiritually led the people to worship God. And I say one of the few because if we get farther down the line, they really do start to deteriorate. They hold on for a little bit, and they hold on to worshiping God longer than the northern nation did. Because in the birth of the northern nation of Israel, they started out as idolatrous. When the nation split, they started with worshiping uh, golden calves, which is really going back all the way to Mount Sinai into Exodus, um, the beginning parts or middle parts of Exodus, where the people start worshiping the golden calf, and they get into a lot of trouble um, waiting for Moses to bring the law of God down to them. We know how that plays out in general. You can read Exodus chapters 19 through 34 for more on that. 
And so, here in the nation of Judah in this time, in the 800s BC, Jehoshaphat is a pretty good king. And that's really what we want to start with, with understanding. He's a pretty good king, and he's even spiritually leading the people to worship God. It seems that it's often our experience that when we go through a trial, as Jehoshaphat has, and then get back to what God is, has for us to do, we... I know that for myself, a lot of times when I get back to that place where I feel like I'm actually doing what God wants me to do, I've gone through a rough patch, it's like, okay, now I'm doing what God wants me to do, everything's going to be perfect. Everything's going to go well, nothing's going to go wrong, we got through that season, we got into summertime, everything's great, fall hits, right? Winter hits, the election comes pandemic is still a real thing. We, we start going through, we're like, what? I thought life was going to be perfect from now on. Surprise! So here's the thing. It's not a surprise if we would just stop and think about it beforehand. It's not that big of a, sorry, my kids are laughing at me. It's not very, it's not very surprising if we would think about it in the, the big picture, but so often, church, we become nearsighted in seasons like this, and we think that we came through this tough time, now it's all going to be good. Now we're not going to struggle. Now we've got this down. Now we figured it out. We just, you know, have to wear masks when people are looking and not wear them when they're not. I'm not accusing anyone, but like, we, we get into this thing of like, we're just going to you know, find a way to cope and everything will go back to normal. And even if we say we're ready for the new normal, we're really still looking for the old normal. We're still looking for how life used to be. And so what's interesting is a lot of times that's when our knees get taken out. That's when the enemy comes and he hits us from behind or hits us from our blind side. And, and the young people that I teach in, in our home group and that I've, I've kind of walked through life for the last decade from their youth years into their adult years now, they know that I say this all the time. You've got to keep your head on the swivel. You have to keep your head on the swivel. You need to be looking around because the enemy is not going to come at you from a direction where you can see him coming. He's going to attack from a different direction. And it's funny that oftentimes when we think things are good and going really well, he will attack us from something new. And I think that we could see attacks coming at the church that are going to be new for us. There's really nothing new under the sun. Read Ecclesiastes. Solomon talks all about it. But when we look at our lives, I think the enemy is prepping something fresh and we need to be ready because God is going to use us in that season as well. God is going to use us there as well if we're ready to be used by him. And so let's look at what happens here in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. I hope this encourages you, church. This is a powerful text. After this, it says, 2 Chronicles 20 verse 1. After this, meaning the um, judicial reforms that Jehoshaphat has brought about. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, together with some of the Meunites, or Meunites, came to fight against Jehoshaphat. People came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast number from beyond the Dead Sea and from Edom has come to fight against you. They are already in Hazazanon, or Hazazon, Hazazon, you try it, Hazazon, Tamar, that is in Gedi. That's easier to say. They're in Gedi. Jehoshaphat was afraid, and he resolved to seek the Lord. Then he proclaimed a fast for all Judah, who gathered to seek the Lord. They came even from all the cities of Judah to seek him. This makes a lot of sense if you think about it in the situation of their world in that day. As the northern kingdom of Israel is warring with the Armenians, the countries east of the Jordan River and the Dead Sea decide it's time, and an opportune time, to invade Judah from the south. In other words, any hope of having... 
um, help from the northern kingdom of Israel. They're very distracted fighting in the northern Syria area. And so this is the perfect time for these southern and eastern nations to come at southern Judah um, at a time where they wouldn't have any help. They will be alone at this time period. And so as word gets to the king, they're already within 50 miles of Jerusalem. The area of En Gedi is only 50 miles away, so they're close. They're really close, and there's a lot of them. It's a vast number of people. And it's interesting to note here that Jehoshaphat had a large army. Some would say, some have even estimated or said based on the text prior that he had over a million fighting men at this time. He has a large army. And oftentimes we see in scripture the tendency to lean on the physical provision rather than to cry out to God. A lot of times in my life I know that I, I like wait until the physical provision is completely gone and then I'm like, Lord, I'm desperate. And here's the point. Even if we have physical provision, even if we have all that we need and then some, do we still look to God to save us or to provide for us? Are we still looking at the strength of numbers rather than looking to God to be the one who delivers us? Now, this vast number of people coming up to fight him could possibly dwarf this army. I don't know that. But you would think there would still be some confidence there in the amount of men that he had to fight for him. However, either way, we have an example here of having physical provision, but still trusting in God's ability to save. I don't know how many of this vast number was. It could have been a number so much that Jehoshaphat was like, we need help. I think that he saw that he needed help regardless. Regardless of this, if, if he had enough men to fight them and felt like his chances in battle were good, he still turns to God. He still looks to God to be the one who saves. And just because we have financial stability doesn't mean that we shouldn't lean on God. And just because we have good government doesn't mean that we shouldn't trust in them. Um, doesn't mean that we should trust in them rather than the Lord and obviously vice versa. Just because we have good government doesn't mean that we should put our hope and our trust in them. And vice versa is the same as well. I would say, especially if we don't, but I would say, even if we do, does that make sense? Like I'm asking a camera if that makes sense, but does it, I hope that that, I hope you're like, yes, that makes sense because I, I think that that's important. I think it's important that we recognize it doesn't matter if we have good or bad leadership. Good leadership is what we want. We want people who emulate the heart of Christ to lead us. That's what leaders in churches should be. And that's the kind of leadership we would like to have in positions of authority as well in our world. We want to see people who understand and know God to lead people in the way that he would lead them. But even if that does happen, that does not make that person God. That doesn't make that person a God to be worshipped. It means that that person is a human being who is following the Lord as they should, and we need to pray that they would continue. So here, Jehoshaphat proves how good of a king he is. Not because he is mighty, and not because he does the thing that flexes the hardest. He looks to God, and he leads people to look to God for saving. He doesn't try and take the spot or the position of having the people all look to him so that he can go out and win this victory for them. He directs their attention to go to the Lord, to seek the Lord. The king is afraid. Did you see that in the text? Look at verse 3. Jehoshaphat was afraid. He's got quite possibly, a million fighting men, and he's afraid. It's okay to be afraid. It's okay to be rattled. What matters most is what we do next. When we are afraid, when we are concerned, what do we do next? Do we succumb to fear and start freaking out, losing our cool, or do we go to the Lord? Do we seek the Lord when we're afraid? 
May our reaction, church, this is my prayer for us. May our reaction echo this example given by the king of Judah. May we resolve to seek the Lord when we are in peril. Resolve to seek the Lord when you are in peril, when you're in trouble. And as we'll see shortly, we don't even need a plan. We don't even need a plan. I'm a guy who loves a plan. You can ask anyone in my family. All these people here, no, I'm a guy who likes a plan. I like to make a plan. I like to check my boxes. Any of you in the church know me. You know how I am. And I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm saying, and it makes me better than you. I'm saying it actually weakens me a lot. Because I like to look at the plan and go, okay, the plan's good. It will go well for me. Not, I need to trust the Lord and let him play out his will how he wants. And that may not look anything like what I would do. And that's a good thing. We're going to have to... Submit ourselves to God's will rather than our plan. And we don't even need to have one or have an idea of how we're going to survive what we're facing. We are to seek him regardless. I don't know how God's going to work, but I'm going to seek him regardless. And as the king leads the people to follow, they fast and they gather together to seek the Lord. Now, notice this. Look at your text. In chapter 20, verse 4. It says, well, let's read a little before that, about halfway through verse 3. Then he proclaimed, the king, a fast for all Judah who gathered to seek the Lord. They gathered to seek the Lord. Do you ever slow down and read your Bible and, and ask questions of it? Really dig into the text and go, what does it mean to seek the Lord? Is God lost? Do they not know where they can find him? That's, that's not, the, that's not the, the direction at all of this. What does it mean to seek the Lord? Are they literally looking for God as if he wasn't there? I don't think so. Seeking the Lord means that they're separating themselves from their desires and their wisdom and wanting God to both reveal his will and lead them into it. I'm going to say that again. Seeking the Lord means that we separate ourselves from our desires and our wisdom, and we look for God to both reveal His will and lead us into it. God, set us in your will and lead us there. I'm laying aside my desire. I'm laying aside my understanding. I'm just looking for you to do what you want to do. Think about what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 31-33. I've read this verse often this first year of our church plant because it's been on my heart a lot. And, and when the Lord some, lays something on my heart a lot, I like to share it because I, I don't know that, that, you know, you people need to hear it as well. But, but oftentimes what he's putting on my heart, I need to share because it's for all or some of us. Maybe it's just for a few, but I know that I need to share this because this has been on my heart a lot. Jesus says this, Sermon on the Mount, towards the end of chapter 6, verses 31 through 33. So don't worry saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. Gentiles are eagerly seeking those things. What they're going to eat, what they're going to drink, what they're going to wear. And he says here, Jesus says, your heavenly Father knows that you need them. God knows what you need. And he continues this in verse 33. And this is our, our key word. This is our, our hot word right now. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Was Jesus kidding? I don't think he was. 
Jesus doesn't say to seek after all of the things that the Gentiles or the people of the world seek after, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, and what you're going to wear. He says, this is what you need to do, Christian. Church, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. Does that mean we're looking for it in our, you know, pantries? No. When he says seek, it's the same thing that I, that I, sh- I revealed to you before, that I showed you before. Seeking the Lord means that we separate ourselves from our desires, from our wisdom, and we long for God to reveal his will and lead us into it. And so if we are seeking first the kingdom of God, Jesus isn't saying that we should gear up like Indiana Jones and go find the kingdom of God. That's not what it's about, right? It's not us getting out our whip and our hat and be like, hey, I'm going to go find the kingdom of God. It's going to be out there near the ark somewhere. That's not it at all. What he's saying is we are to seek it by obeying the word of God and following his leadership. We are to obey the word of God. We are to be in his word and obeying it actively in our lives. That's seeking first the kingdom. And then he's going to provide food and water and clothing and the needs that we have. He knows we have those needs, but we shouldn't be running around worrying about those things. We need to be seeking first his kingdom. All the things that we're concerned about. How much of those things is dominating our lives right now? The worries of the world, of pandemic, of election, of politics, of of food shortage, whatever it is. How many of us that's just dominating our thoughts right now instead of seeking first the kingdom of God? Don't let Satan win. Don't let him distract you from what you should be focused on. Some of us, myself included, have gone through these seasons of sickness where we had to just be locked up for a while. Are you taking that opportunity to seek the kingdom of God? Are you worrying or binge-watching Netflix? Seek first the kingdom of God. Fill up with the things that he wants to encourage you with and get ready to go out and to reach people with the gospel. We're to seek the kingdom of God by obeying the word of God and following his leadership. And that's why Jesus prayed in Matthew 6.10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not about us running around looking for the kingdom. It's about us living kingdom life now. To seek first the kingdom is to live kingdom life now. And it's not about us escaping and getting away into God's kingdom. It's about his people living unto him here. That's why we're not trying to pray ourselves out of this world. We're not like, I'm just trying to pray myself out of here. That's not a biblical thing to do. Jesus said, your kingdom come, it should be our prayer. As the church, we're to cry out, your kingdom come here. We're to pray the kingdom of God here. For the glory of God. We want Jesus to rule and reign here. And so the people fast. And they go to the temple here in 2 Chronicles 20. And they're seeking God's will. They're seeking what God will do. And then they pray. And they pray behind their leader. And I, I, I just, I want this to be the kind of leadership that we have in the church today and the kind of leaders that we are, especially for us parents, husbands and wives in our families, that this is the kind of thing that we're doing for our families, that we're leading them in prayers such as this. Look at verse 5. 
Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the Lord's temple before the new courtyard, and he said, Lord God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven, and do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hand, and no one can stand against you. Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and who gave it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in the land and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name and have said, if disaster comes on us, sword or judgment, pestilence or famine, we will stand before this temple and before you for your name is in this temple. We will cry out to you and because of our distress, you will hear and deliver. This is pretty cool stuff if you think about it, and I want to break this down briefly. Jehoshaphat recognizes three things here that are key. If you look at your text, there's three things that are really key. Number one, God is sovereign. Number two, God is almighty. And number three, God has promised. Number one, God is sovereign. Number two, God is almighty. And number three, God has promised. So standing in the temple, he proclaims that God rules over all the kingdoms of men. God is sovereign. We've been over this almost to exhaustion, but it's not exhausting because it's always good news. It's always good news when we recognize that God is sovereign. Because we've seen it over and over again in Daniel. It's the theme. If you've been following along with our studies in Daniel, this has been our theme. It's as true today as it was in Daniel's time and Jehoshaphat's time before him, and it will always be true. God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. Whether we vote for someone or not, God is still in control. That is biblical truth. Okay? God is in control. He is sovereign. And so when we seek God, we recognize that he is sovereign over everything that's happening in our world right now. Spiritual and physical. God is in control. He is sovereign. The second thing that he proclaims is this. God is almighty. God is powerful. Look at the text. It's here in verse 6. He says this in the middle of that text. Power and might are in your hand and no one can stand against you. You know, a lot of us as Christians, we've read the Bible. Some of us may have read it cover to cover multiple times. But maybe we forget these things, that God is sovereign and God is almighty, that God has power and might that he holds in his hand so that no one can stand against him. If we believe in the sovereignty of God, then we believe that he is almighty and that is the next logical step. If we believe that God is sovereign, then we believe he is almighty. It's the next logical thing to understand and believe about him. Now notice this. The fleshly way of showing power is flexing. The fleshly way of showing power is flexing, right? Let's be honest. That, that's pretty much it. And for most of us, it's pretty uninfestive physically and positionally using our influence. Uh, most of us just aren't that powerful when you think about the big picture of the world, you know? You see the person down at your local gym just like, ugh, ugh, you know? And there's somebody somewhere that's like twice their size, right? It's like even the most strong, the, the most powerful person, like who is the strongest person in the world? The strongest people I've ever seen are not the strongest people in the world. So even by comparison, not to mention putting me up next to them, right? Old toothpick man. So, or flabby toothpick man. But if you think about this, 
we cannot compare, physically speaking, to this kind of strength. We look at the, the, the way that people demonstrate themselves physically and flux and show off how strong they are. It's like they're still weak. They're still weak. They're still nothing compared to God. Even in positions of influence, when people have power over other people, even the greatest dictators of this world will fall or die eventually. They still will reach their end. They still will be shown to be finite and fragile. And God offers a completely different view of what real power is here in this situation in 2 Chronicles and among other places to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through verse 10. The second half of 2 Corinthians 12, uh, verse 7 says this, Therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, this is Paul speaking, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me, so that I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, Paul speaks, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. Not for no reason, for the sake of the name of Jesus. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, I am strong in faith. When I am physically broken down, God can be strong in power and might. That's what makes him powerful, is that he can work through my weakest places. He can work through us when we are the most vulnerable and drained. Where we feel like we're worthless. Church, I think that there's a lot there for us to consider. Not just on a whole, but I think that for some of us individually, we're pretty weak right now. We're pretty frail. It doesn't even have to be what is obviously afflicting us in our world right now. It can be things that are individual that's happening within our family life, that's happening within um, our job situations or our schools. Maybe there's something right now that you look and you're like, I could have never been as weak as I am right now. And I believe that that's a word for you. I believe that that's encouragement for you. For my power, God said, is perfected in your weakness. Now, God doesn't use everyone in the same way. God's going to save his people here in 2 Chronicles 20 in a different way. But I just think that it's important that we see both sides of this and see that the power of Christ in us is able to glorify him in our weakest points if we will submit to it and have the heart that says, I will take pleasure for the sake of Christ in weakness, insults, hardships, persecution, and difficulty. You realize that's only something we can do by the power of the Spirit, I hope. Because I'm not physically able. I need the Spirit of Jesus to encourage me in this. I need Holy Spirit to fill me and empower me so that I can have that kind of focus. Because I can't do it on my own. When I'm weak, when I, when I recognize how weak I am, when I feel like I'm drained and I have nothing left, I just want to give up. But the Spirit can compel us and power us forward because if we recognize that God can be made powerful, that he can show his power perfectly, then we can rejoice and not pout about it, but be empowered by it. I hope 
that that's where we find ourselves. God's power in Paul's life was perfected in his weakness. God's power through David was military triumph. That's fair. Probably didn't see that coming. But God's power through David was to give him military victory. God's power through Paul was to give him strength and weakness. God can do both. He can do both. God established his people through the leadership of David. Those are just two examples of so many. God's power through Jesus Christ was death on the cross. God's power perfected and unleashed was the Savior dying on the cross so that all who believe could be saved. This is a dynamic thing for us to grasp. What are we willing to go through so that God's power will be perfected in us? Jesus laid down the example. Are we ready to deny ourselves and take up the cross and follow him? How can God perfect his power in my life? I think that we see lots of biblical examples, but I think it's something that we need to seek after in prayer. Here in 2 Chronicles 20, they're seeking for God to rescue them by revealing his power to save them. God is sovereign, God is almighty, and the third thing that Jehoshaphat points out is that God has promised. God has made them promises, and he is just proclaiming those promises, saying, we have not forgotten that you promised this to us. Look at verse 7. Are you not our God, who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel, who gave it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? I love that, and it's also in the place of scripture in Isaiah, where it says, Abraham, God's friend. I want to be known as a friend of God. Not only am I saved by him, not only am I his son, but I'm a friend of God. We have, a, we have an intimate friendship and relationship. It doesn't put me on the same level with him. It doesn't put you on the same level with him. It means that that's how God views us, and that's how we love him, is as this person that we are interconnected with relationally. It speaks of relationship. Verse 8, they have lived in the land and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name, and have said, if disaster comes on us, Sword or judgment, pestilence or famine, we will stand before this temple before you, for your name is in this temple. We will cry out to you because of our distress, and you will hear and deliver. They're just proclaiming the promises of God from Second Chronicles chapter 6. When Solomon dedicated the temple, you can read about it in First Kings chapter 8 and in Second Chronicles 6. And as he dedicates the temple in which this crowd is standing at this very point in Second Chronicles 6, 34 and 35... Solomon said this, When your people go out to fight against their enemies, which is what they're about to do, wherever you send them and they pray to you in the direction of this city you have chosen and the temple that I have built for your name, may you hear their prayer and petition in heaven and uphold their cause. Jehoshaphat is bringing the people back saying, we need to do this. This is how this temple was dedicated, was to look to God to save us in times of distress. Let us come and pray and look to him to save. Look at verse 10. Jehoshaphat continues. Now, and he presents the problem, the thing they're facing, not because God doesn't know, he's recognizing the factors in play. Now, here the Ammonites, Moabites, and the inhabitants of Mount Seir you did not let Israel invade them when Israel came out of the land of Egypt, but Israel turned away from them and did not destroy them. Look how they repay us by coming to drive us out of your possession that you gave us as an inheritance. Notice that, your possession, God's, or 
it says, by coming out to us out of your possession um, at, that you gave us as an inheritance. And he says this, Our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this vast number that comes to fight against us. We do not know what to do, but we look to you. We'll get to that in a minute. The Ammonites and Moabites had refused to allow the Israelites to pass through their territory when God brought them up out of Egypt. They wouldn't let them pass through. They had to go around. Even though they said, we just want to pass through. We're not going to do anything here. We just are on in route, basically, to the land that God has promised us. They said, no way. They had to go around them, and they had never sought any revenge against them. They would never done anything back to them because of that. It cost them. It was a costly move for them to have to go around. But they didn't seek any revenge. And so now as these nations are invading, the king just simply states it. Look how they repay us by coming to drive us out. Now they want to take the possession that you, God, have given to us as an inheritance. Your possession that you gave us. They say, God, you own this land. This is your land. And you have given it to us. And they are trying to take it from us. Notice this. Don't miss this part. Look at verse 12. Our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless. It's hard for people to admit sometimes that they're powerless. For we are powerless before this vast number that comes to fight against us. We do not know what to do, but we look to you. We don't know what to do, but we look to you. Church, this is the verse that has gone around and around in my heart for more than a week now. I cannot get this out of my head. We don't know what to do, but we look to you. And so often, we just stop right there. We stop at the first part of it. We don't know what to do. And we leave off the second statement. I don't know what to do. I don't know if you said that to your wife recently, guys. Ladies, I don't know if you looked at your husband and said it recently. Kids, I don't know if you said it to your parents. Parents, you said it to your kids. Dogs, you said it to your owners. There's any dogs listening right now. It feels like this goes around a lot. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to handle this. I wasn't prepared for this. The manual of life is missing so many pages. It's just like when you have kids. When you have children, there's no instruction manual. They just hand you the kid and say, don't mess up. You ever think about that? Shouldn't there be an instruction manual? Like, I'll just Google it. We didn't have Google when I was younger. We just had to figure it out. That's why our kids are all messed up. But here's the thing. You guys, we don't know what to do. So many of the situations you're facing right now that you may not even be telling your brothers and sisters in Christ about, which you should, but you aren't, you don't know what to do. And so you're just, well, just try something or do nothing. Both wrong both wrong. Don't just try something. Don't do nothing. You guys, how many of us are asking these questions right now? These are just the ones that the Lord put on my heart. I don't know what to do, so I'll try this substance. I don't know what to do, so I'll just try this medication. I don't know what to do, so I'll just try this relationship. I don't know what to do, so I'll give in to that temptation. I don't know what to do, so I'll try that political party. I don't know what to do, so I'll succumb to fear and depression because of a pandemic. I don't know what to do, but i got to do something. Church, we can't be like that. Don't leave off the second part of the statement. We don't know what to do, but we look to you. 
We look to God. We look to what the Lord is doing. We cry out and we seek Him. And we go, Jesus, use us as the church in this season. We will never experience true joy, peace, and hope until we follow the words we do not know what to do with, but we look to you. Church, we have been saved by the blood of Jesus. We have an advocate. We have a mediator. We have a lover of our souls who has spoken to us so clearly through his word, who longs for fellowship with us in prayer, and who has given us instruction on how to handle these types of things. And he's saying, would you just look to me? Would you just follow me? Would you just rely on me for the daily things? As this gathering of Israel in 2 Chronicles 20 stands before God in the temple, united in heart, declaring, we do not know what to do, but we look to you. They're about to watch as the Lord delivers them through singing songs. I'm not kidding. Read the rest of the chapter. The Lord is going to take them out, and before they get within eyesight of these, of these vast people who are coming to destroy them, they just start worshiping and singing praise. And the armies fight each other and kill each other. They come up over that hill. They look down into the valley. And they're wiped out. God throws them into disarray through the worship and praise of his people. I don't have time this morning. That's a whole other thing. But maybe we should be wrecking the strongholds of the enemy with our songs more often. And if I was in person, I'd yell out, can I get an amen? Because that's just what I'm feeling right now. They're going to march out and start singing and praising God, and these nations that are attacking them will turn on each other and destroy each other, and God will give them the victory because they came to him and said, we don't know what to do. We're lost, but we're looking at you, Lord. We have no clue. They had no idea. You would think that Jehoshaphat would be like, I have an idea that um, the Lord's going to use all these fighting men that we have to bring about this great victory. Wrong. God's going to destroy the enemy with songs of praise. There's so much humor in that for me, but I don't, I don't have time for it. It's just really cool. The Old Testament is full of these accounts, full of witnesses that testify to us that we have no better place than to put our faith in Jesus, to look to Jesus, to entrust our lives to him, and to look to him right now where we are. This isn't some fantasy. These are far more dire circumstances that they face in the Old Testament at this moment. They are going to be invaded and destroyed. And they say, we don't know what to do, but we look to you. And it's, it's on this foundation, this testimony that the writers of Hebrews speaks of. In Hebrews chapter 12, which follows Hebrews 11, and we know most of us will remember that Hebrews 11 is called the Hall of Faith. It's all these examples of faith throughout the Old Testament of people who trusted in God and God used for his glory. And I say that specifically because some died to the glory of God and some lived to the glory of God. And that's for God to choose and not me. But either way, God was glorified. And that's exactly the life I want to live because that was the mission of Jesus Christ on this earth was that God would be glorified. That's why he came, lived, died, and rose again. And can I get an amen? Sorry, I had to, just once. You guys, that's why Jesus came, lived, died, and rose again, was to glorify God. And that's why we are here. That's why we are here in this season. And so the writer of Hebrews that looks at all these examples in Hebrews 11 and says, all of these examples of faith, 
Hebrews 12, 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a large cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary or give up. Look to Jesus. That's the message of Hebrews 12. Think about what we read here. In 2 Chronicles 20, verse 12, we do not know what to do, but we look to you. And the writer of Hebrews looks back and says, see all those witnesses in the Old Testament? All of that, they surround us and they remind us to lay aside weight and sin, to let us run with endurance and to keep our eyes on Jesus. When we see it in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 12, we see the fulfillment in the church today. We don't know what to do, but Jesus, we look to you. We know what the overall mission of the church is. We know that we're here to glorify God. But the individual situations that we find ourselves in, I think a lot of times this just baffles us. I don't know what to do. It's not as easy as saying there's just a cut and dry answer for every situation you're in. It's not that simple. Yes, we're called to obey and honor God, but sometimes we, we don't know how to put one foot in front of the other. And that's why we pray and we ask God, as Jesus taught us to in Matthew 6, give us this day our daily bread. And I'm going to keep saying this over and over again because this is something else that has just rocked me lately. He said, this day our daily bread, not tomorrow's bread, not our neighbor's bread, not the GMO free bread, today's bread. Give us today what we need so we can get your work done now. So that we can glorify God now. So that people will see what Jesus has done and glorify God and submit themselves to Christ. That's why we're here doing what we're doing. But there are individual situations that we're going through and we start forgetting that. And we need to say, Lord, in those situations, I don't know what to do. But look to Jesus. Look to him in that moment. Would you give me your guidance? Would you show me how to go forward? Would you win this victory for me? Because I don't know how to win it. I'm losing my mind. I'm going crazy cooped up in here. And I know like the word that we all don't want to hear right now is quarantine. But I want to tell you this. Jesus will be faithful in quarantine. Jesus will be faithful in freedom. Jesus is faithful when we are enslaved in this world. Jesus is always faithful. He never lets us down. He never fails. Jesus not only always wins, he already won. If you're losing hope. If you're struggling with this, don't forget what the Word of God has said. Jesus has begun something inside of us by saving us. And Philippians 1.6 says that he who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, when Christ comes again, we will be finished with this race. We will be completed. Don't forget that in the end, we, we will be done. We'll be done with this process of fighting and struggling against sin. But church, don't grow weary in doing good. 
Galatians 6, 9 says that, let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. Don't grow weary. Don't let the world get you down. Church, we are in this together, and we are led on by Jesus who already won victory. Lord, for those who are watching this morning or who may watch it later, I pray that this word would encourage them by the power of your spirit that you would stir them to renew their strength, to mount up on wings like eagles, to run and not be weary, to walk and not faint. Because that is the ability of all those who put their trust in you. A lot of people stumbling and falling right now. They put their trust in other things. But Lord, I just want to step forward and ask that you would synchronize the hearts of our church and all those watching right now as I pray these words. Lord, in so many ways, we don't know what to do, but we look to you. Lead us on. Feed to us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forget our, forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. May, Lord, your church never forget that yours is the power and the glory and the kingdom forever. And together your church says, Amen.